I mean, anything that we do in our lives that's valuable is going to cost us something. And so you have to put yourself out in a place of this is going to be costly, this is going to be painful, and to normalize struggle as you are making something good. You know, the calling to make things, like the very first thing we learn about God, it's like the fifth word, he created, right? right? So we are creators. We make in the manner that we were made. My guest today is John Hendricks, who is an award-winning illustrator. He worked for the New York Times. He's a professor at a major university. He illustrates all kinds of things, including books about Jesus for children and graphic novels about heavy topics like Dietrich Bonhoeffer's execution. He's also a really interesting man, an elder in his local church. I'm delighted to have John Hendricks with us today. From the Center for Faith and Work here in St. Louis, this is Working with me, your host, Dan Doriani. Here we strive to fire the imagination of Christians who long to practice their faith in the workplace. Through conversations with doctors, athletes, teachers, executives, and more, we seek to engage those who desire to do significant work, to practice love and justice in their work, and who dare to change their corner of the world through that work. So I have John Hendricks with me today. He is almost a freshly minted professor, full professor, which is a big deal, at Washington University here in St. Louis, which is one of our nation's fine universities. That's right. And um, John is not, uh, you know, a physicist. He is not a uh, medical researcher. He's an artist, illustrator, with a uh, with a nice resume and some really nice books that he has illustrated for children, some books he wrote and illustrated for children. <laughs> That's right. And some books. Double threads. Yeah, and some books that actually showed up in the card catalog, if there is still such a thing, as a, uh, as a children's book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's actually listed as a children's book. Yeah. I don't know. It's a hard sell to, uh, yeah. to a secular publisher, but... I did it. Yeah. <laughs> I would call it a book for adults. It really is. Yeah. yeah. But a child can learn from it if they're highly intelligent and maybe 10, 12, 14 years old. It's a middle grade book as, as yeah. they would define it. But I've had plenty of adults read Faithful Spy and tell me they learned things about the rise of Hitler or how the Third Reich came to power that they did not fully articulate in their mind before. So that's that's very satisfying to hear. It is satisfying to hear. Uh, my wife and I have both read that graphic novel, and I learned a couple things, and I was also reminded of things. I, mean, I know we'll get into these you know things more, but uh, you're a graphic novelist, and you've got one done and one in, in process on C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and, and Friends, sometimes called the Inklings. Um, I learned that babies were baptized in the name of Hitler. Crazy, times. right? Crazy. Yeah. And Heil Hitler, a lot of people know, kind of means uh, hail Hitler, but it could also mean salvation to Hitler or salvation from Hitler. Yeah, much much more like my my king, my savior, rather yeah. than my my leader, yeah. which is the, the translation is, is, it's one of those that do, the German doesn't quite approach the true meaning of it. Yeah, right. I mean, they looked at him as leader savior. Yeah. Oh, I mean, literally days after he, you know, announced himself as the Fuhrer, you know. The Fuhrer, not a Fuhrer. Yeah, right. The Fuhrer. Uh, Bonhoeffer was on the radio saying with his his kind of landmark address, God is my Fuhrer. And Mm -hmm. that is the only person we should give that title to. So he was he was out in front. I mean, you could you could make an argument. He was the first public declaration against 
Hitler as Fuhrer um, all, that we know of. Yeah, right. Yeah, there probably were others, yeah. but we have the record. He was he was lacking what I sometimes call the fear gene. It uh -huh. seemed to me, yeah. there are some people that wander through life unaware that they could be bent on self-immolation. Agreed. And uh, maybe it's foolhardiness. Maybe it's raw courage and faith. Yeah, I know. I I, I look back at him and think, oh, I would make all those choices, and I don't think I would make <laughs> any of those choices. I. I we just right. don't, we, we really have a hard time grasping what it would feel like to be a human being with a family, with the concerns of life, and make those kind of choices. Right. I, I wrote a kid's book about John Brown, who I think is in a similar vein. Um, I, I love these, these people in history that had this sort of nexus of courage and crisis and faith yeah. and how those connected. Yeah, that's good. I have to say I haven't read that one. Uh, since we're going this direction, let's talk a little bit more about Bonhoeffer. I mean, one of the things that uh, occurs to me is that maybe you had a, um, a look at the current age, not just the past, and the need to be bold in our own age. Was that in your mind a little or a great deal? Well, it, it was on my mind a great deal as I was executing the actual art for the book. Yes. I, I came up with the idea in 2013, and these, these books take a long time. Yes. And I honestly felt like, does the world need another book about the Holocaust? Right. It just seems like there are so many colossal works. What could I possibly add? Right. And I also felt like, do as a you know, my books are meant for young people in an educational sphere. Right. Do we need to continually be telling people the Nazis were evil? Um, right. And um, you know, and then as my book is published, suddenly there is a literal Nazi rally in in Virginia, and it was right. like. I should get no credit for any sort of prescience. I think that was, um, you know, God's timing in that sense. So I was, I was sort of blessed to be able to speak into a conversation that was happening that, that I really did not design. But yeah. it, it did have some resonance for sure. Yeah, but there are always uh, possibilities for radicalism and uh, wild excess and pressure, right and left, not so much the center usually. Right. I mean, it occurs to me that... Um, uh, one of my favorite quotations is from an archbishop of a Catholic church in Chicago who said uh, about the status of Christianity in the world today, and he died a couple of years ago, but he said, I, I believe I will die in my bed. I believe my successor will die in chains. Mm. I believe my success his successor may die in the flames, and mm. I believe his successor may pick up the ashes of Western civilization as the church has done so many times before. Now, mm. I'm not sure he was saying he actually believes that strict succession will occur, but I think it's worth remembering that whether you're thinking of Chicago or the world, there are always threats. And if you stand up to the big bullies, the powerful bullies, there could be grave consequences. That's right. Yeah. I certainly tell my students, you know, are you willing to suffer for your faith? You have to ask that question. It's, it's, I think about it all the time, and I think that's why we find history so compelling. It gives us a lens to see as someone else did and right. to inject our hopes and fears that are real to us, but when we think of history, often seem like, well, those people were different, you yes. know, uh, and they were not. They were the same. <laughs> they, they were different in certain superficial ways. That's right, yeah. But they, I'm sure... The human condition was the same, right. Yeah. Bonhoeffer's heart must have been thumping out of his chest when yeah. he gave some of his talks and took some of his actions. Well, and he made bad decisions. You know, he, yeah. he refused to do a funeral 
uh, or a wedding, I can't remember, uh, for a, a friend of his that was of Jewish uh, background. But this was before he made his hard decisions. And he yeah. remembered feeling extreme guilt yeah. and just like, I made the wrong choice. So, you know, it's not like he knew instantly the right thing and did it. He, he felt the grief of making the wrong choice. And even when he went to America to flee yes. Germany, he knew he I made back. the wrong choice. Yeah. yeah. He remembered that echo of like, I need to do the right thing, even though he knew it would end, you know, in his death, most likely. Well, it's hard to do the right thing in a real crisis when you oh, know, you're I, in art, yeah. uncharted territory. Yeah. And if you come out in the right end three quarters of the time, you've done really well in a crisis, oh. I think. But good things happen. You know, one of the one of the points uh, in your book uh, is that he encountered a uh, pretty fiery preacher politician mm -hmm. named Adam Clayton Powell. Who gave a sermon that stirred him? Mm -hmm. It's not enough to think, and that's a good word for an academician that's right. like Bonhoeffer, you and me. Mm -hmm. Realistically, you have to act. Yeah, and he, he took that to heart, as yes. I, as you uh, showed in your book. Yeah, that that nexus of the the civil rights, the early civil rights movement in America, and Bonhoeffer's own experience. It was like the perfect little cauldron for him to take. You know, his his love of God and his love of God as like being present in, in God's church, right? He loved the idea of the church. Yes. And then to see the African-American experience and to say that it's not just mental assent. It mm -hmm. is, there is a doing. Yeah. Uh, and then he saw that played out in America and as, as his friend Frank Fisher took him around and he was, you know, they went to a diner together and they were told they couldn't eat together and, mm -hmm. and Bonhoeffer could not. Fisher being black. But, excuse me, Fisher yep. was black from, from Harlem. Right. And, you know, Bonhoeffer wrote home and said, can you imagine something like this happening <laughs> yeah, in Germany? Yeah. yeah. And what's happening in Germany is not refusal of meals, but right. extermination. Yes. So the, that dissonance early on, he felt it. And then, you know, look, he fell in love with the Negro spirituals and he carried with him that, that sense of the American uh, black experience to Germany with him. So it prepared him. Yeah, really, really did. To see... Mm -hmm. um, black Americans and Jewish Germans, if you will, as uh, being in a somewhat similar situation. Not identical by any means. Right. As, as he would say, the other, you know, right, the, exactly. that the church is really otherness. You know, Christ is only present in his church, which is not you, but the outside of you. And so he saw otherness as the Christian experience. Well, and he also liked to tell happy stories about Samaritans, for example, who do exemplary things in a society where they were the off-scouring of the earth, the Samaritans were, that is. Um, so one thing I, uh, and you know I was, I'm going to ask this question, um, the, the Bonhoeffer book is not what anybody would call pretty mm -hmm. at all. Um, and I don't think you go for pretty in general. I mean, you know, you, I'm not saying your work is unattractive. I, do, I don't make the Thomas Kincaid level. Right. It's not um, saccharine, maybe. Or yeah. Like, it's not right. you know, it's not. It's not, you know, yeah. the Book of Kells, sort of look at that green, That's look right. at that blue. Yeah. <gasps> How do you get those colors? That's right. It's uh, why did he put brown, red, <laughs> and green, and black beside mm -hmm. each other that way? It's, it's really easy uh, to understand. I think intuitively why you did that with the Bonhoeffer story, but I would love to hear you talk about color choice in a difficult story. Yeah. But also, uh, Miracle Man is not. You know, it's it's it's. Uh, I wouldn't use the word beautiful. I would say it's it's attractive. It's striking. It's excellent. It's uh, arresting visually, but I, don't, I wouldn't call it pretty. Yeah. 
yeah. it's not. Miracle it's Man, not, and by the way, just for everybody who's listening, is a children's story, maybe pitched at seven-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Most picture like books that. are, you know, four to eight, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, so four to eight-year-olds, and it's uh, The Life of Jesus, which I think, by the way, it's an outstanding book, if I may say Thank so. You. Thank you. But talk about your color choices, maybe first the Bonhoeffer and maybe children's illustrations? Yeah, it's a, such a good question because I do think color and beauty can be relaxing and soothing and yes. pleasant, right? That is one function of beauty, and that's a good one. Even in aesthetizing. Yes. <laughs> that And that is, again, a communication goal. Um, right. But for me, that was not my goal in using color. It was a communication tool. You know, so in Bonhoeffer, yes. there's two very striking colors, this uh, teal and then this bright red yep. and and the black of the ink, right? So, and then, you know, Hitler kind of gets the red colors, Bonhoeffer gets the teal, and then as their story overlaps, the, the colors overlap and Creates those two colors other. vibrate. Yeah, they're, they're very unsettling. It's unsettling. That yes. is exactly right. Yes. It is not... You don't sit there and think, oh, this is so relaxing. Yes, that's right. And one of the reviewers, I just love this. She's like, uh, or uh, they were writing, I love this book, but it was just as the colors were so (laughs) disturbing. And I was like, yes, that is exactly right. Yeah, she's like, there's this dissonance in the color. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Constant Um, clash is how it felt to me. You have to fight through some of the color at some point, which was intentional and made some people mad. Um, But... Yeah, the, the idea was to this, ratchet the stakes up visually along with the story, which is right. one of the fun things you can do. It's a trick, really, that an artist can do that a writer, you know, necessarily can. Yeah. Miracle Man. Let's talk about that one. Yes. Since I've read that and I've read it to my grandchildren. Oh, good. And they liked it. They're, that's, the, that's the real audience. Yeah. Yeah. And they're <laughs> four and set, four and a half, seven and a half. So I mean, that's that, probably it means middle. a lot to hear from you, someone who has uh, real credentials, uh, that the book was good and meaningful. Uh, because I, whenever I write stories about Christ, or it feels like, am I really trying to improve on Jesus's words, or like, you know, kind of punch up the Bible? Like that seems like a bad idea. Uh, and so it I is do, a, it is a bad idea, right? I'm not imp- yeah. approve of your impression. <laughs> Thank you. That trying to improve on the words of Jesus is right. a bad idea. Like he, he was onto something, but I think I can make this a little pithier. But you let uh, it stand by, you let things kind of stand by themselves a lot. Mm-hmm. I, ho- I hope so. I try to get out of the way and right. approach it almost like you're hearing um, a tall tale or something like a folk story for the first time. Um, and I love that idea of reinventing something we think we know maybe through pictures or words or a collection of those two things together. You clearly did research. Well, thank you. I did. I'm glad it was What did you research? Apparent. Why did you think you had to research well, not only children's story? The huge problem just visually in depicting Jesus is like a massive problem. What does Jesus look like? Right. Um, that's one aspect. So I spent a ton of time looking so at... So for the record, this Jesus is kind of lean and wiry looking, which I think is wiry. almost certainly correct. We right. can't be sure. But can't be sure vast majority of all people in the artisan class would have been lean, wiry, impoverished, right? Yeah. Strong Mm -hmm. physically because they had to walk everywhere and work with their hands. Mm -hmm. At at one point I was going to have him wear a black robe. Uh, I thought that was an interesting metaphor, but a little research, of course, black dye, very expensive. So that Mm -hmm. would not have been what he wore. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but I did also give him embellishments. I mean, obviously, um, Scripturally, where Jesus put his foot down, flowers did not immediately grow after he um, 
stepped off the ground. But, you know, that is a, a, a metaphor, a treat that I am trying to tell a young reader that this is something. Yeah, this is like this thing, even though it's not literally that thing. Right. So you have to weigh the metaphorical and the literal when you are using art. I liked your term tall tale, actually. We use that term in our house, always have, a lot. Huh. And a lot of tall tales have been uh, fabricated right. in the Doriani household. Yes. And a, <laughs> and a child who, you know, speaking dogs and uh -huh. monkeys who are smarter than the scientists who study them yes. abound yeah. in these worlds. And, uh, you know, by the time a child is four, they usually have a pretty good grip mm -hmm. on what's tall tale and what's mm -hmm. real. Mm -hmm. So I, th I, I think it's fine. They, children get metaphor at an early age. Well, so I've had some people complain about Miracle Man uh, for one particular passage where Jesus is performing um, the miracle of loaves and fishes. And yep. uh, in the book, a, a girl delivers him yep. the meal, not the boy. And, and lots of folks are very upset about me changing scripture. Uh, and of course, they're not pointing out that I'm also, you know, having Jesus turn birds into words and um, make fish, you know, form sentences on the ground. So there are things that people find literally upsetting where metaphorically other pictures can do things that they don't register in the same way. So mm -hmm. it's a, it's it, back to your question about color. The, the color was meant to change your point of view. I, I think of color as a communication tool. So what is it What is it trying to do in this passage? Is, is it drawing your eye to this one thing? Is it making you see a tree in a different color and makes you think of it in a new way? Yeah. And of course, focal point. Yeah, you know. right. Yeah. That's good. Um, so this sounds to me like a, a very natural work to you, uh, but it's not easy. Uh, you said it took several years to write Bonhoeffer. I'm guessing it wasn't a weekend's enterprise. That's true. To write anything, probably one, two, three, four years mm -hmm. for most projects from first A picture book I can do about a year. year. Um, okay. From the very first thought till being done? Well, oh no. I mean, no. the actual execution of it is about yeah. a year, but a couple years ahead of that where I'm kicking it around. Right, and, right. But graphic novels, the Bonhoeffer thing, that was a full four years, yeah. five years. So tell me about work a little bit. So why So why do you do this? Well, uh, it's part of it. I mean, obviously, uh, if I have it right, you yeah. you work for newspapers. I do. Got some awards, like some important newspapers maybe. Even. I've had, yeah, I've had a few. I, I've worked in a capacity as an editorial illustrator yeah. in that sense, working that for mean? magazines, newspapers. Yeah. That means they're calling you with an article, you read it, and you give a, a piece that presents you know, the point of view of the of the article, but also through the lens of your own editorial idea. Right. And you so, might ask them to change things a little bit. Yeah. Or, or say, you know what, I don't necessarily want to illustrate this piece. I mean, that's also an option. Okay. Uh, you know, I don't necessarily they think, want to. They, they think you should illustrate this right. way. And you say, I'm uh, yeah, sorry, just, but I you, can't put my name on this particular thank thing. Thank you very much for your proposal, but it's not workable. That's right. Right? Uh, you know, and to be honest, most of the days now, if I turn down a piece, it's less for content and more just for time. I mean, that's right. a gift that uh, I've had the last few years is to be able to spend more time on my books um, and do the, the work I really want to do rather than doing another spot for, uh, you know, golf magazine or something. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So let me, let me uh, go in that direction. This is a podcast about faith and work. And there are, uh, by, my guess is there have to be, you know, low tens of millions of people in America who, you know, could make some money or plausibly, mm -hmm. I mean, two of my children uh, have sort of become the in-house artist for mm -hmm. their, you know, and mm -hmm. one 
was was kind of earning a hundred bucks an hour as a side gig for a while in her career doing things like chalk art yeah uh for restaurants i mean she's good that's great but it's not her job right um there i'm guessing there are probably 10 20 30 million people who have some pretty serious artistic ability oh which i'm just hinting it runs you know my grandfather was a painter yeah my wife you know two of my kids it just it just floats around I have none of it, just to be totally clear. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but it floats around in certain families. Yeah, it's true. And some people try to make a living doing things like drawing corn for, um, you know, shop and save grocery stores. What would you say to the many, many, many people who are artistically gifted and it's probably not going to be a career for them? Mm-hmm. You do not have to get paid for your work to be a real artist. I think this is the number one thing I tell people. The, the idea, this is an American idea, that for your calling to be real, it has to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just disagree with that as a, as a Christian. You know, the calling to make things, like the very first thing we learn about God, it's like the fifth word, <laughs> he created, right? right? So we are creators. We mm-hmm. make in the manner that we were made. So, okay, you make stuff. Keep making those things, whatever that is. If you crochet, like if you make firewood into sculptures, that is art in, in my mind. Um, and it adorns your home. Absolutely. And it, it brings life for your it's friends. It's gifts to other people. It's yep. absolutely. Yep. Um, then there's this other thing of art being a career, a, a, a commodity. And that is another art form. Right. Now, being able to make stuff that you truly love and are fed by while also getting paid that is a, a very narrow uh, hoop to jump through. And it is possible, and it takes a lot of work and discipline and trial and error. And, and some breaks. Absolutely, yeah. Did you absolutely. have any breaks? Were you, were you oh, always... I look back and I'm did like... It, did it fall in your lap? Or? Absolutely. I fell backwards into my career. I don't know how it happened. I, I mean, I moved to New York for grad school. I'm a guy hustling on the pavement, trying to get... Um, you know, work. I get a few things. I got to think as of the artist, village voice. As an artist, yeah. yeah, showing my work. But basically, it's like an actor. You just yeah. go around and deliver your portfolio. And um, and then I um, met a, a guy who worked at the New York Times, and there was an internship there, and I applied for the internship, and I had some experience working in PR before I moved to New York. So you understood the I life just, of a newspaper. Yeah, you, you I could, could speak like, their language. That's yeah. right. Or I yeah. could talk on the phone. I could, yeah. like deliver an email promptly you know just things that were like basic yeah basic life skills yes uh and so i i eventually got hired uh as an assistant art director on the op-ed page in the new york times which is like a chapel of illustration basically it invented the editorial illustration as we know it today Mm -hmm. um so i worked there for three years oh yeah there's lots of portraiture there's um visual ideas you know i worked with milton glazer on a piece um I, i mean i worked with all these phenomenal artists and that really gave me this huge just, opening. Yeah. And, and it was Friends. people spend their whole lives trying to work at the New York Times. And mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know what happened. I woke up one day and I'm working in the New York Times. Well, I, you must have some ability. I mean, they wouldn't have invited I, I, you if you I had must. no ability. I, yes, that's right. It's hard yeah. to believe that's true. But yeah. But um, the point is there are lots of other people with high ability. That's I true. Think. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe the sense uh, I, there was a, a musician who... Uh, was very successful and went through his entire life insisting that there were so many musicians who were more talented than he. And people said, oh, you're just so humble. He said, no, I'm realistic. Mm-hmm. It's the truth. I wrote a song. It became a hit. Blah, blah, blah. Forty years later, I'm still writing these songs. Trust me when I say 
there are people so much more talented. Yeah, I, I think the people that make it, it's never a measure of their talent. Uh, it's a measure of their desire. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's just putting yourself in places where you can be successful over and over and over again, even though there's no data to back up the fact that you will be successful. Right. You know, yeah, you, you never know. No. And I had lots of more talented people that I met, but, you know, I, for whatever reason, wanted it enough to continually subject myself to, you know, basically pain. I mean, anything that we do in our lives that's valuable is going to cost us something, right? Yes. And so you have to put yourself out in a place of this is going to be costly, this is going to be painful, and to normalize struggle as you are making something good. Uh, and then you do that enough, you're going to be in the right place at the right time. So uh, one of the things uh, I'm thinking of as you say all this is that you had to be willing to be an artist who was also promptly answering emails mm-hmm. and putting yourself in a yeah, not overtly artistic environment. Mm-hmm. In other words, you had to be willing to do a little bit of, um, you, some people call it compromise. Other people would say you had to find uh, your niche in society where your particular talents were wanted mm-hmm. and not be an artist all the time. Yeah. You had to be an artist part of the time mm-hmm. and take on other tasks that enabled you to flourish. So much of my career now is like when is like waiting for the time I get to do the art or like right. you have to prepare to do the art. And it's like, when am I going to get to the art? Uh, and in the same way, I tell my students, never say no to a job because you think you can't do it. Like mm. just... Just take, just take it. Like what, what could happen? You know, I mean, they're like, oh, I'll get embarrassed. I won't know what I'm doing. I'm like, you so you'll learn from the critique. You will. Yeah. You right. just have to throw yourself in and it feels so awful. Um, but the, there were many moments in my life, like working at the New York Times where I had never laid out a newspaper before, but I knew Quark Express. I knew how to talk on the phone. Uh, I'll figure it out. And, yeah. you know, that's part of the fun of it. It is. It is. And I, I mean, I often tell people when uh, they're a little bit stuck in their work, just volunteer for something off to the side. You know, it's not part of your job description. Um, I'll help with that. And then you learn a skill, you meet new people, maybe a door opens up that wasn't ordinarily going to open. You don't do it necessarily in a cold, calculating way, but you, you just try things. Well, and in my book, Drawing is Magic, which is built off a lot of my teaching, mm-hmm. I teach students to really center uh, enjoyment in, in making as a way to find that thing that you like, if, if you're not being paid to do the kind of work you want to do, find your friend's band and tell them you want to make them a t-shirt. Cause that's the thing right. you want to make, right? right? Like, so get to the heart of making that is centered around. I enjoy the process, not the outcome, you know, mm-hmm. like people focus on, I want the book to be published so I can have a New York Times bestseller and be famous, but like, oh, the actual writing? Oh, I hate writing, you right. know? But like, that's 99.9% of the entire experience, you know? So. Well, you're, as, as an author, you know perfectly well that, you know, you're never finished with a book. You're, I'm done. Well, no, oh. the editor has one more round. Oh, yeah. I'm done. No, there's a series of, there's three pages of questions. Yeah. By the time the book's done, you're sick to death. You're so done. <laughs> yeah, you just, as Picasso said, I don't finish anything, I just abandon it. So that's what it feels like. Wait, who that's said just, that? Picasso. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah right. Just, just this, it's done. Just throw it away. I mean. Right. And then in, in publishing, I finish a book and then it doesn't come out for a year later. So by the time it's actually out, I, I've actually detached in this very healthy way where I, I've forgotten all the trauma. Right. I'm, not fu- I'm not so invested in it. Yeah. Uh, it's actually good. Yeah, that can happen for sure. Although it doesn't always happen. <laughs> it can happen. 
Yes. Um, I don't finish a painting. I just abandon it. Uh, you know, another way to say it is uh, no one ever finishes a book. Someone pries it out of their hands. <laughs> That's right. Another, another way to say it is nobody I ever mean, finishes it, a book. They just stop writing. Uh-huh. Same no, idea. There's, you're so right, though, because I'm in the midst of edits for my editor right now on my uh, Tolkien and Lewis manuscript. And I, just this morning, I was having to cut some things that I love. And I yes. just, the sort of anguished moan that comes out when I'm like, oh, yes. Delete, you know, uh, but you're it's, keeping it somewhere, though. I do. I save it at the end. I have a little thing called boneyard. I yeah, just put I, it down I, there. Oh yeah, I call it cuts. Yeah, at the end and of my it's books. like I can't quite. Yeah, I just just in case. Yeah, it's so. And once in a while, they want it. I stick it in. I'll stick these things that they cut. Yeah, and I and I'll just leave it at the bottom of the catch it. last chapter. Go, mm -hmm. What's this? This is well. This is something you wanted me to cut. Right. What's well, really good? I uh -huh. said. Well, I agree. That's why. That's why I stuck it at Thank the end you. of the chapter. Thank you. I'm gonna use that. You by all means. Um, it's sort of recalcitrance. I don't know. So uh, God, God gave you a gift. Obviously, you were you were drawing things when you were little. I don't. I don't remember a time before drawing. I don't remember a time before Jesus. And I think those are connected in my story. Mm -hmm. um, I think most people have were drawing when they were young. Yes, and then they stop for whatever reason. Usually about 12 years old when that self-consciousness gene kicks in yes. and you're like, oh, that person does it well. Yes, else. that person right. does it better. Mm -hmm. uh, and Which then certain may be people, true, of course. Of course. Everyone, someone's always doing it better. Right. But for whatever reason, people that continue to draw, they just, they have to do it or it, it does something to them that they can't find in another place. Yeah. Even if they're only doing it for their, you know, their husband, wife or kids. Right. Right. That's good. So we keep it up for the sheer joy of it. Um, I'm going to ask you a tiny, a couple of, you know, sort of spiritual questions, if I may. Uh, do you pray before you draw? <laughs> oh, do you pray I, as you draw? I, okay. Do you pray that you will, that your work mm -hmm. will bring light, joy, peace, love, understanding into mm -hmm. this world? Mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you offer it to God? I, okay, so that's such a good question. It's such a good question. I am afraid of thinking too highly of my own work, right? So I, I rarely pray versions of, Lord, let this work go out and do your great bidding. You know, mm -hmm. I just, that doesn't sit right with me. Usually right. it's, it's prayers to humility, although I am not above praying that a particular passage of a drawing would go well, especially when I, I do watercolor over pen and ink. And yeah. so, you know, you got one, you got one pass on some right. of these things and there's just sometimes it's like, okay, you know, Lord, it's your will. I hope this goes well, but, <laughs> right. um, I do, I do pray. I, I draw during church. That's actually one of the, the periods where I feel the most connected to drawing as a worship form. Um, you draw as, what the pastors, it, it sounds crazy. Yes. But I'm basically um, jazz improving to the pastor's sermon. Even yeah. remotely crazy to me. <laughs> Because it's great. my daughter, I mentioned, yeah. would, you know, just draw yeah. during church. She didn't, some take notes, you know, uh -huh. others draw. Because I, I cannot watch someone speak to me without two, three minutes in, I'm just, I'm somewhere else. So the hand moving, yeah. I, can, I can hear better. Yeah. Um, and there's folks in my church that crochet or do various hand right. things while listening. And it's a version of that. Um, it's just, I... I draw, and when I'm drawing, that's when I actually enjoy enjoy drawing the most. And so, you know, when even if even if nothing ever comes of it, that's right. Just the yeah. act of it's like kids on a playground. No one, no one 
in, when you watch kids on the monkey bars, no one's like, you're doing it wrong, right? It's just the act is to enjoy, right? So art as play, play. is yes. a thing that we Thank have you. completely lost. Yes, I love that. Uh, it's a little bit like music as play, right? Mm -hmm. When a child or an adult is noodling around, you don't say, well, you can't play those notes. Well, I just did. Yeah. And I understand if it's a person with some sophisticated understanding of musical theory that I didn't follow the Dorian mode as you think I should have. Right. But it sounded good to me. Yeah. And uh, I may do something with it someday. That's right. Right. Uh, so you do try to love God and neighbor through your art, though, uh, especially the art that's deliberately public. Mm -hmm. How do you conceive of that? Let me put it this way. We, have, we like the phrase around here... Um, changing our corner of the world. We're not going to change the world, but we might want to change one corner of the world. How do you try to change a corner, your corner of the world, through your art? Mm -hmm. What's your goal? For me, art making is deeply connected with sharing, with, mm -hmm. with others, otherness. Um, I think there are people in the world that can make purely for themselves, and that is why they make work. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that percentage is actually very small. I think those people are the exception. That, that most of the time, we are longing to communicate something mm -hmm. with someone besides ourselves. Right. Um, By which so, you mean art yeah. or music or maybe yeah. you're a storyteller. That's right. A writer. Or, right. you know, if you were... I do this as an exercise with my students, my graduate students. If you were on a desert island the rest of your life, you had all the provisions in the world, would you make art? Mm. And if you did, what would you make? Right. If if the idea of sharing it with others was was gone, how does that change your frame of what you think art making is? What's your answer to your question? I, I honestly I don't know if I would continue to make the same things. I think I I might do ceramics. I, I don't know. I think I would focus on something that had such material and physical enjoyment um, that it was made purely for that moment of making. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's a. It, to me, sharing my work with others and thinking about, you know, I'm sweating all the details on this book on my drawing table. I'm done with it. And then many times I forget that it goes out into the world and children right. check it out from a library and have right. an experience with it. Um, but I'll hear from them. And, and that's, I mean, that's wonderful. That's, a, that's some of the most satisfying things is to hear kids being, you know, responding to what you've made. So uh, what have you learned by working as an artist that you would never have learned otherwise if you'd been a bricklayer or a uh, marketing guy or something? Mm -hmm. Well, being an artist requires you to separate yourself from your work in a very real way. I see this with young artists where art making feels so personal, right? And it, and mm -hmm. it is. It's when you write that story that's centered in an experience you had in childhood and you put that out in the world, that's different than laying some bricks in a sidewalk that maybe someone just doesn't like the color of, right? It feels... Or they do like the color. Or maybe they love the color, yeah, right? right. Uh, and so, and just as, just as you were getting at, the reverse of that is also very tempting when you put that story out and someone loves it to like turn your work into this idol of uh, self-love, of self-fulfillment, um, that can also be a danger, too. Um, so I, I have found that that healthy separation of the work you make from you uh, is just, to me, you have to conquer that early on in art making. I'm going to make something. It's not me. Right. This work is going to go out. It's going to have if flaws. It's, if it's disliked, they don't hate they me. They don't hate me. 
Um, if it's they not perfect. like you, it doesn't mean it you're doesn't, now an acceptable that's right. person. That's right. It doesn't justify you as this great, great person. I either. now have a meaning in life because I am yes. loved. So well, I it's so t- it's so there's so much temptation to do that. I'm though. sure there is. Yeah, I remember um, so, quite a few years ago, I heard a, a concert violinist, and you know th- there are different ways in which musicians introduce themselves, and some of them just stand up and start playing, which I really oh. like. Yeah, uh, and others want to tell you about how this song came to them in a dream, and and you know, yeah, uh, they they you know they spend about half the concert talking about why they played this chord mm-hmm. at this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, this guy took um, an almost almost just start playing plus nothing approach. He was a soloist; he could do whatever he wanted. He did stage; he could talk; he could play. Solo violin, thousand people. Mm. He just said. I have something for you. <laughs> yes. That's all you need. That's right. Love it. When you said that, it reminded mm-hmm. when you talked about your delivery of a work to the world, it reminded me of that. You, you may like it or not. I, I do have it for you, and I, I prepared it with you in mind. Yeah. It's, it's described, it don't explain. Like, I do right. not like things explained to me, right? Mm-hmm. So, here is a, a meal I've made for you. Yes. Yeah, give it a try. Yeah, yes. That's right. Very good. So you're kind of like that violinist a little bit. You're also an elder in a church, I think. Is that right? I am. Grace yeah. and Peace Fellowship. What That's would right. you say to a church about art in the church? Mm. Oh, I, I, I'm teaching a class with the uh, Carver Project in July, which is an organization of Christian faculty at WashU. And I'm teaching on art in the church. And this is such, a, such an interesting question. Um, I, I think the biggest complaint I have about the arts and the church is just um, the lack of weird art that is celebrated. Weird art. Weird. Yeah. yeah. I, there are so many weird things in the world, and yet the church seems to um, recoil at weirdness for fear that it might be doing something um, blasphemous or, or how is this supporting the gospel. Um, you know, the sort of overly functionality uh, the, yeah. of art making, right? Yeah. And so if you really did want to support the arts, it would not be just liturgical banners. It would probably right. be having an artist in residence program where you just give artists a space and say, you know, go make your weird, you know, fancy hats uh, or whatever. And, you know, don't tell us what you're doing. My, uh, my daughter, the artist, once drew me a chameleon, Mm -hmm. and had these words on it in a very lovely script. This is a chameleon. It is your birthday. (laughs) This is what we, more of this. Yes. I think that's what you're driving at. Yeah. And something just, and it's a, it's a lovely, whimsical, funny, but also pretty realistic chameleon, chameleon. And uh, I think you're saying we could just have a lizard drawings in the church Mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to signify redemption or the fall it's Mm -hmm. we're just drawing a lizard here well jesus seemed to be very interested in surprise or Mm -hmm. or things that were unexpected or reframing your expectations on what you think religiousness is Mm -hmm. Uh, and i do think he was an artist he told stories uh he created illustrations in our minds he didn't draw but he was using visual metaphor we would say so far he maybe he did draw we, well we there know. is a, you know he wrote in the sand there's that one passage but 
but yes, he was certainly an art artist, and he some thought, of his, po yeah. his poetic speech, which we don't recognize as poetry, but it's, it abounds. Right. It's just it's just for the sheer literary beauty at times. Mm -hmm. I mean, when mm -hmm. I read, I think it's beautiful. It doesn't. It could be an ordinary prose, and it would mm -hmm. still have the same mm -hmm. content. But it's beautiful. Yeah. Just for fun. And, but, I, and some of his parables are just great stories. They're great. And they're, they're mysterious. They're not immediately evident what the right. conclusion is. Um, and I'm not saying art solves all the church's problems. I just mean that uh, I, I just wish the church would embrace mystery and things that are unusual and maybe don't have an obvious and clear answer. Not, not essentially looking always to the functionality. Correct. what I'm yeah. hearing you say. Yeah, that's a good word. Um, all right, so do you have anything else you want to say about your career? I want to, I want to move to like toward our some of our uh, standard questions for a minute. Do you have anything else you want to talk about that we haven't squeezed well, uh, in? No, no, no. I th the only thing I want to cover about this is I think a helpful metric when thinking about art that people don't understand is I think of two big bubbles of mystery and clarity. And, okay. and, and art can do both of those things help unpack those things very well. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a good artist, like when I'm doing the story of Bonhoeffer, I'm trying to bring clarity to something that uh, maybe is needing that. And a lot of artists are trying to actually enhance the mystery of something. Mm -hmm. um, and so occasionally, art will do both of those things simultaneously, increase both clarity and mystery. I, I think of like a rainbow, right? It is so clearly a demonstration of beauty and so clearly mysterious, right? Yes. And so there are these magic moments where art can do both of those things. So that's often what I'm aspiring towards. Yeah, but mystery is a good way of saying it. I mean, sometimes we're moved and we don't exactly know why. Mm -hmm. We were actually talking before we started about lecturing. Mm -hmm. And you and I both know that you were saying we have to be entertainers. But sometimes we're, um, you know, we appeal to the mystic dimension of the human soul we don't even know we're doing it we, we suddenly see that our maybe somebody's in tears mm -hmm. or somebody's laughing for unknown reasons or um the room is eerily quiet mm -hmm. and we're not sure how that happened right but we, we were well prepared we, yeah. we're doing our best yeah you end the moment willingly happened. yeah that's right right okay so we've talked about a whole lot of uh things i mean uh, one question i like to ask so if you're, uh, we almost hit this one. If somebody is a uh, commercial artist, uh, they think, well, I just, you know, I just draw labels for canned goods mm -hmm. or frozen. What would you say? They say I, my work is meaningless. Mm -hmm. I'm not putting a thing in the universe. Mm -hmm. You, I aspire to be like you, John. <laughs> yeah. uh, how can I be uh -huh. like you? How can my work be meaningful? What would you say to a 24-year-old who's a commercial artist yeah. working for, you know, a manufacturer. I, I mean, make those things. If there's a calling on your heart to make stuff, do, do it right now. Don't, w don't wait till someone pays you to do it. Just start making that thing you want to make, first of all. So if you're tired of doing chickens, do chickens, and after you're done with the chickens, go home and do something else. That's what else. I did. I literally did poultry brochures my first, oh, really? in my first <laughs> job. Yeah, I designed right. uh, for, for uh, this chicken feed company. Yeah. Um, and there is such honor in a craft and a trade that's well known and well loved and um and making making art for you know consumer goods like food is worthwhile it's it's providing clarity that's what right. design is Tells design you what you're is to buy. yes design is a function of clarity and hierarchy and those are things god loves mm -hmm. <laughs> so you are you are 
I, I was at a lecture once and someone said, raise your hand and like, you said you worked in advertising. Uh, I think advertising is, is of the devil. Oh. And I said, oh, oh okay. And he's <laughs> like, well, because it's, it's lies. It's just taking things and turning them into lies so people yes. will buy them. So inside this box, there are not Wheaties. There right. are cockroaches. There are, yeah. <laughs> well, I said a version of, well, but what if you had a good product and you really wanted that product to be out there? I, I mean, I think you're sort known. of using. Yeah. Right. So anyway, I think all, the box is all fallen. Okay. We know that. And right. there are redemptive forms, uh, you know, of every job profession. There are fallen versions of that profession. So I, I think it's wrong to sort of like. You know, pick the weeds out of the weed. Well, and art is like a cell phone or a shovel or a microphone. It's a tool. You can use it for evil, right. but it That's doesn't right. mean it is evil. That's right. You use shovels. You can hit somebody in the shins with a shovel. That doesn't mm -hmm. make shovels evil. But, but I think it's also wrong to say, like, the, this design of this uh, green beans can is somehow less worthy of redemption than someone writing a book necessarily right like People there's this need to know there are green beans here if you <laughs> right, want to eat right. green beans yeah and vegetables are good for you for some people beautiful labels are their calling and it is a a task of making things gorgeous and that is holy and good yeah thank you that's that's really good uh let me ask you a few questions um what do you do to play or to relax oh, other than yeah. draw more i know I, it's so true like yeah. my thing I do when I'm not working is do different work. It's, like, <laughs> right. it's my... <laughs> okay, so it's when you relax, you draw. I do, I do draw Sometimes. for fun, yeah. But what, do you, what else do you do? I love my garden and my yard. I, mm. I like dirt. Uh, I like the process of planting and basically designing, but with living things, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so that's one thing I love doing. A lot of plants are beautiful. Oh, man. What a, f yeah. God is, it's a master class in, in shape, contrast, form. Shading. Uh, oh, it's great. Yeah. yeah. That's good. Um, what do you play with your kids? 15 and 12. It's a little, oh, they're, man. Not, they're not seven and five. They're not. Do you play board games? We, so I am a huge board game fan. And for whatever reason, I, I failed as a parent in many ways. My daughter will play super complicated games with me. And my son will have very little of it now. Uh, we have had a thing. We, love, we all love Star Wars. Okay. So we have. Um, Action figures? Uh, well, the movies, yeah. yeah. But we, we have done a thing over the years since they were very little of like a YouTube show. It's oh, like okay. a. a commentary show about star wars so that's oh, one that's thing we've fun. done together over the years it's, uh, it's like doing something creative yeah, we write the scripts and, and yeah. build skills and that's right you can laugh at how it turns out maybe and they watch them back through the years and and now do, my son's getting the age where watch them they, it's it's on my youtube channel so you can okay. find it i don't really put it out there but every now <laughs> and then someone will find it and be like what are these <laughs> but well, i said he's just at the age now where it's like he th he's just a little too cool. He's just like afraid, like, yeah, oh, no. Somebody's going to find this. Yes, that's great. <laughs> that's good. Um, so you write books, you illustrate books. What books do you like to give to your friends to read? Oh, man. Um, you know, I was telling uh, just earlier, I'm rereading Dune right now. The books, oh. that, the books that I read as a kid were fantasy, you know. Yeah. Dune is a, uh, especially the first volume, I think. Oh, it's a I mean, somebody put some extensive research into that oh it's a it's gorgeous the prose is great i forgot i read it in high school it's deeply ecological as it well. is it's this great commentary the prose is beautiful i forgot how well it was written <laughs> yeah anyway 
Um, I think he ran out of gas toward the end. (laughs) Well, he was probably, like all of us, like cashing the check. You know, the editor was telling him, like, these Dune books are selling like crazy. Like, you got to do 10 more. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, Well, that'd be my guess. Yeah. Uh, Oh, I thought you said you know that. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. no. I'm sorry. I was was speculating. Um, Okay. I speculate with you. Well, as a person who knows the feeling of, like, after Faithful Spy did well, Mm. you know, my agent, my editor was like, who's... Faithful Spy number two. Basically. Who's another person like this in... Civil War, maybe. Civil War, Nazi era, or like... And I I just was like, I'm sorry. I'm a little... I got to do, I really want to talk about Tolkien and Lewis and how much they mm-hmm. loved smoking pipes together and reinvented <laughs> fantasy. And they're like, we're not, we're not totally sure about that. We're not sure about the market for pictures of men smoking pipes. Again, yes. I, I Somehow I sold them a graphic novel about a German theologian. So I feel yeah. like Oh, the whole theme is pipes. That's it. Intelli- that's European it. intellectuals who smoke pipes. <laughs> that's, that's, that's your that's wife's a, work. That's a huge John category, Hendricks, to be honest. The world's number one author mm-hmm. of graphic novels about intellectuals who smoke pipes. Dark, uh, wooden-lined rooms. Uh, yes. yes, right. Yes. Well, that would be quite a um, quite Wait, an what were we talking about? Things you hand... Oh, okay. G- <laughs> Gilead is a book I always give people. Okay, uh, yes. Marilyn Robinson, yes. love her. I'm reading Jack right now, um, yes. the fourth in that series, but I've read Gilead several times. Yes. Annie Dillard. Um, yes, oh my goodness. Tinker Creek. I, I used to read that now, once a on, year. Isn't that overwrought a little bit, though? The, the, this particular oh, connection? Isn't it a little bit? Is, oh, doesn't oh, she Annie overdo Dillard's? it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I, I got this, that when she, I was I 25 years old. I an editor. Yeah. Like, just tame down this prose. <laughs> That's right. I liked it, but, yeah. I mean, every dead bug is worth a chapter. Oh, she, said, she spends an entire chapter just laying in the woods watching a, a, a beaver or a badger do nothing, literally nothing. Yeah, I tried to get my wife to read it. I love The Writing Life is another book I love of her. So don't take, you know, oh, listeners, do not take it as derogatory. Listen, send all hate mail about Annie Dillard (laughs) to Dan I deeply admire Annie Dillard. I just thought Pilgrim at Tinker Creek was a little bit overdone. I'm amazed at uh, how we read similar books, or maybe not amazed. Um, Well, you know what? One thing about Annie Dillard, I read Pilgrim at Tinker Creek when I was 25, and for whatever reason, that book, like, unlocked my heart. Okay. And I wrote her a letter because mm. I made a painting of, she uses a visual metaphor in that book called The Tree with the Lights in It. So mm. I made a painting of The Tree with the Lights in It and, and sent, it, sent to her. it to her. And she wrote me back. And Did so, she? yeah, I have a framed letter from her in my, in my home that I, 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 that was a moment where I was like, not only are, is this person important to me, but they're like a real human being yeah. that like responded. It was, it was, it was a crazy moment of like, oh, wait, maybe I could do this, you know? Mm. But that's interesting. Um, put aside all practical considerations. What would you do differently? <clears throat> what other job might you take for one year? Mm. I know that what you might most want to do is have unlimited time to work on graphic novels. That's I right. I accept that. Yes. But let's suppose that you're going to do something significantly different from yeah. that. I think I would. Well, as a, uh, I remember vividly telling my parents that I wanted to be a puppeteer and a Air Force pilot. And that didn't work out. Mm. Uh, that particular combination, there wasn't that's a lot hard. of yeah, that's, university programs. I think in that's that. called um, drone flying Yeah, drones. that's right. Yeah. Uh, Air Force pilot, really? I, well, I don't know what. I must have seen Top Gun. I don't know what. I just vividly remember my parents sort of like being polite, but like Puzzled. that's not going to. Yeah. 
Yeah. They were very supportive, though. That's not going to fly. You didn't want to say that. (laughs) Yeah. Normally, they're so supportive. So to see the sort Uh, of immediate, like. Okay, you're avoiding my question. I'm sorry. What would you like to do? Would you. I always wanted to go to seminary. so if I could be a professional seminary student, um, you could probably do that for a semester anyway. Okay, it's I love sabbatical. That's right. Yep. I love music, mm. uh, but I, I'm not a very good practitioner of music. So I think if I had just time to reinvent, like learn songwriting or the acoustic guitar, or okay. I, I love the idea of the singer songwriter. It probably in the same way the author illustrator, like it that you know that ability to craft something that exists in space temporarily and then is gone right, as a right. song. Yeah, right. very interesting conceptually. Yes. Yeah. Well, somehow this reminds me of Oscar Isaac. You know the actor. Oh yeah. In the I think he's in Star Wars. Yes, that's right. Poe Dameron. And yeah. He's quite a musician. Did well, you know that? he was at Lewin Davis and in inside yeah, Lewin he Davis. Did it all he, he did it all. Okay. He was a professional musician. Oh, I didn't for a know while. that. Yeah. So all the songs that Lou and Davis plays, he plays wow. and sings with no, I think, you know, with no extraordinary embellishment. That's those things when like actors say, oh, I spent six months learning yeah, this no, no. skill. He actually was a musician. I see. I'm yeah. secretly jealous of the ability to like, I want to devote six months and like learn the nunchucks or something, you know, for, uh, <laughs> for this is why I'm a we're, university we're, yeah, we're faculty getting, member. You're because, not quite following the question I'm when sorry. you talk about uh, nunchucks. I'm right. sorry. Uh, if you Can were, we cut that cut that out of the? <laughs> if you were, uh, we've kind of covered this, but I'll give you a minute if you want to to say what would what word would you give to a talented newcomer mm. to your field? This is the thing I regret in my own practice was I was not patient. Mm. I did not know how long it took to do good work. I did not ha- know how long it would take to become good at my craft. Mm. Um, I did not publish my own book until 10 years out of undergrad. And if you had told me when I graduated college that my first book would come out 10 years later, I would have assumed I was in some sort of coma for most of that time, Mm -hmm. that I'd had some sort of accident. But no, it just takes a long time to figure yourself out, to learn the craft and to get a lucky break. Um, and you gotta, you gotta be persistent and patient that whole time. And that's a, that's a long time to walk through the wilderness, basically. Especially when you're 23 and 10 years is my goodness. And everyone tells you that the 20, your twenties are like the best time of your life. That's basically a fiction. It's kind of like money. I I think it's like being engaged. Yes. Yes. You're just waiting and that's right. I mean, you you have no real career, you have no right. family, you have no yeah. influence. Not much money usually. Right. You want to, you have a great strength, but you don't mm-hmm. can't do what you want with it. Yeah, and yet young people look around. They're like, "Well, Taylor Swift and Mark Zuckerberg were millionaires when they're 25, so I guess I missed my chance. I'm 27, mm. and not you know, a not a wise thought. You're just figuring it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, last question: Who should I interview next? Oh, man, such so many thoughts about this. I okay. so I met a wonderful artist in Nebraska recently. Okay, she is graphic visual artist. Oh, no, a a singer songwriter. Right. Her name's Hope Dunbar. She uh, is a really interesting person, writes amazing songs. Um, I just talked to her on a podcast she did last week. Um, She's great. Another person I want to recommend, Vesper Stamper. Okay, she is a she was she was a musician. She was a musician for many years, and then um, she lost her ability to play music and started writing and illustrating. And she's written several illustrated novels that have done very well, and they're gorgeous. Uh, A lot of the themes that we've covered, she would have a lot to say. Yeah. 
Well, if you really think it's worthwhile, tell them I'm, you know, connect Okay, us. I'll do the email. So for, for a small fee, I will connect you. Well, your fee's right there over there in front oh, of you. Oh, thank you. Great, yeah. great. I'm glad we worked that out. Uh, John, it's been great to get to know you. I've known who you are for a while. I've known some of your friends. And it's lovely to have a conversation. But more important than lovely, uh, I think it's informative. And I hope it's uh, deeply encouraging to people who work hard and want to make a difference through their work. Thank you. Thank you. Working with Dan Doriani is a production of the Center for Faith and Work St. Louis. We seek to promote faithfulness in the workplace, in education, in discipleship, and in the stories of believers who've applied their faith at work. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on your preferred podcast platform. You can visit our website at faithandworkstl.org. There you can subscribe to our podcast, sign up for our newsletter, learn more about faith and work cohorts, leave us a message, and more. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at faithandworkstl and find the video version of the show on our YouTube channel. All these links are available in the podcast show notes and on our website. Thanks for listening.